Okay, so how many of you feel like it would be easier to explain or for them to understand mercy? Okay, a few. And how much? And then wrath. I assume the rest of you, wrath. Okay, what are some reasons why? Why is it easier to? Most of you said wrath. Um, why would it be easier to explain the wrath of God or for them to understand the wrath of God? It's hard to sh- demonstrate mercy without. Okay. Okay. Um, one thing that I noticed just when talking to people is if you leave with God is good and that's what we believe, that then the first thing that comes to mind is why does he let that happen? Mm-hmm. And so if you, if you go, that's why they are in the wrathful side, because they just see the past mm. Okay. Yeah. I think it's easy to point out people's sinfulness. Sinfulness is what brings it off the wrath of God. And so when you compare them to God, well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think the hardest thing to be trying to explain that God isn't merciful sometimes and wrathful other times, so that He's always 100% of both. Yeah. So, he's, so some of you are saying it's easier to explain wrath because they look around, they see bad things happening, and they go, yeah, this is. It, this is easy to see God's wrath, or or it's easy to see God's wrath because of our sin, and it's easy to see our sin in, in light of who He is. And um, how about mercy? What what's what's the reason why some of you think it might be easier to explain the mercy of God? I was just thinking that, like, just like specifically, like where I've grown up, just like the, the, the concept of mercy is like the most appealing part of the gospel, especially to non-believers. Yeah. That, so, gr- growing up in a Christian, or the Bible Belt, I guess you could say, maybe a, in, a, in a town that where a lot of friends go to church, or a lot of people go to church, or maybe a growing, growing up in a Christian culture, um, the idea of God, God's love and God's grace is, is maybe more, more like natural and talked about, and that's emphasized maybe more so than His, his judgment, His wrath, His jealousy. Um, and I think, I think I wonder if maybe this would help answer the question, do most people um, minimize their sin or, or do most people live in fear of God because of their sin? And I wonder if, it's, if, they, if, they, if they minimize their sin, they might be like, oh yeah, mercy, sure, God, I, should, I deserve whatever. But if they live in fear of God, because of their sin, maybe they kind of naturally gravitate to the wrath of God. That He's just this vengeful God that's going to strike me dead and punish me because I've done something wrong. It's a, it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, and so I, I want to want to talk about why we why we're doing these attributes. But before I get there, 
um, wh why we're doing them together. But before I get there, I have a couple foundational thoughts about attributes that I think are helpful that are going to help us kind of lay the groundwork for where we're going. The first is this, that God's attributes are identical with His essence. Um, so we, the, my, when I first, the, the first one I taught uh, several weeks ago, I said that God is so different than us. And, and this is one of those things. We, we don't understand this. We, we, when we display an attribute, it is something we choose to do. It is something that we display. It is outside of us and we, sh and we show it. Um, it may become more natural to some and, than others, but when God does something, then attributes are defined. So, um, he, next week we're going to talk about the simplicity of God. It's this idea that God is simple. He is, he is, he is fully in integrated. Um, he cannot be separated. He cannot be put up into parts. You can't, you can't compartmentalize God, and so therefore you can't pit um, God's love with God's power. You've probably heard someone say that if God was all-loving, then there wouldn't be such bad things happening, um, and so He must not be all-powerful. Or, He's not all-loving and He is all-powerful. It can't be both, right? So some, some people want to pit those two things against each other, and the Bible's pretty clear, like, He's, there's both. He's all-powerful and He's all-loving. And so we have to reconcile what's happening. Same with mercy and wrath. Um, he's always exercising all of these attributes because they are identical to His essence. So it's, it's a good thing to, to keep in mind. Like These attributes aren't just qualities that God has. These are, these are words that we're, we're trying to use to, de, to describe who He is and, and what He does. But what he does and who he is are fully integrated. The second thing is that we must begin with God's action to define these things, to define these attributes, rather than general conception. So we must, we must begin with God's revelation to us, or, or God's demonstration of what he does, um, the character that he displays, his action. Like, that's what defines these things. Um, so when we say things like, God is love, and if we go, God is love, what is, what is love? And then we start thinking about my own experience, or I start looking around at, at, other, at you people, or I start thinking about, you know, a Diamond's a girl, Girl's Best Friend commercial. And that's, you know, if I, if, I, if I maybe look deep within my own experience to, to figure out what love is, and then I go, oh, that's what God is, then, then, I've, then I've taken something foreign and tried to attach it to Him. Instead of saying, okay, God, how have you demonstrated love? What have you done? And so therefore, that's what love is. First uh, John 3.16 is a great example of this. He says, um, this is how we know what love is. He laid down his life for us. Very simple. This is how we know what love is. He laid down his life for us. So he, Jesus and the cross... And all, that, that all the ways that God acted with Israelites up, up until that point are giving us a sign and defining who God is and defining what love is. So we have to start with, um, when we think about these attributes, we start with His revelation, His action, and we go, okay, that's what that is. So, why these attributes? Um, I believe we need to talk about them because I think there is a tension that exists. I, I think some might think these, these two things could seemingly oppose each other. And so we need to talk about how they exist together, how they work in unity together, um, in, in integrity. 
we need to discuss how these two exist together um, and, and that when we talk about both of them, we're pulling from lots of other attributes. So you're going to hear me mention attributes like justice and holiness and omnipotence and love and faithfulness and immutability, which is, which is in other words, is unchanging. God is unchanging. God is good. He's gracious. He's sovereign. He's simple. He's, in, he's, he's integrated. He's fully integrated. He's, so all these attributes help, help us understand the, the, the attributes of mercy and, and wrath. We, we have to pull from these others, again, because they're all one. They're all connected. There's not, you don't just get to take it off and say, this is what it is. It's all, it's all intertwined and connected. And third, and this, I'll get to this at the end, is I think we struggle with, we struggle with mercy, both mercy and wrath. I think we have misguided views of both. And, and so I think there's some sp- specific reasons as I was kind of thinking and praying about um, for my own life that maybe you can relate with. So we'll, we'll kind of get there. But first I want to talk through just the wrath of God. Um, wrath of God, there's probably, there's no really one definition. There's lots, but here's one. It is a righteous response to human sin and disobedience. It's a righteous response to, to human sin and disobedience. Uh, other, uh, uh, oftentimes it's translated anger or indignation or vexation or even irritation. Um, and so the wrath of God is all throughout Scripture. And so there are four things that, uh, that I, I want to propose to you. And the first one is that God is, God's wrath is just. God's wrath is just. Um, actually, I want someone to read. Somebody look up Romans 2.5. Okay? Someone else look up Hebrews 10.30 and 31. Okay? Someone else look up Nahum. You've got to find Nahum. Um, okay, Caleb, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Um, someone else look up Ephesians 2, 3 through 6. Let's get that. Okay. So I'll get to you. The rest of you in a second. Romans two five. Okay, uh, Jared, go ahead. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Okay. So throughout Scripture, um, th- this is this happens. God's wrath just doesn't. God doesn't just fly off the handle. He doesn't have bad days. He doesn't wake up, and you know. And think, you know what? I'm just going to wipe people out because I feel like it. You know, I'm going to flood the earth just because I can. And then I'll tell them I won't do it again. You know, that that's not. It's never how it works. It's always in a a response to. It's always a righteous response to sin and disobedience. And and it's just. It's always righteous. You can exchange justice and righteous. Uh, throughout the Bible, you can kind of interchange those words because they come with, from the same root word. Um, but God's wrath is always in proportion to human sinfulness. And so, you see this theme that his, his, the Bible talks about His wrath being deserved and His wrath being just and righteous. Um, I, I think about this illustration. I don't know if this hits home for some of you, and I, if it does, I, I really don't mean to draw attention to it. Um, but imagine if you had a loved one who is gi- given into an addiction, okay, some substance, and it's, and it's begin to destroy their life. Okay? I've seen this happen 
in um, people that I've known. I haven't had anybody in my family, per se, or anybody super close to me, but I've been close enough to see people heading into it, to see people in the middle of it, and to see people come out of it. And, and so imagine if you had a loved one that was like just dove into this, this substance and it's, it's, it's destroying their life and it's destroying their relationships and it's causing havoc all over. And you saw what it's doing to them and you love them, but you begin to hate what this does. And so you, you would, if you had the power, let's say it's a child of yours or, or it's a sibling of yours, if you had the power, you would do whatever you could to remove this, to remove them from a situation. You would, you would even cause them a little pain, I, remove them from their friends, put them somewhere where they have to recover. You would be willing to uh, maybe at some point turn them away because every time they come, they, they, they lie and deceive and manipulate. You can't have an addiction without manipulation. It, it's just, it is. Every addiction comes with manipulation. And so, so they're coming to you and they're asking for and then money and then you find out later they're, what they're using it for. And over and over, and finally you just say no. And, and maybe I've had parents who've, who've removed children from their home and said, you got to figure this out. You keep doing this, and now you have to figure this out. Um, and, and they are in pain, and they are hurting, and they, want not, they don't want to do that at all, but they recognize this is, what, this is what we have to do. And so, that, that person understands this righteous anger towards something that is destroying someone they love, and they're willing to do whatever to fight it and to fight against it. And, and if that person recovers and comes out of it, you better believe that all of a sudden now it's like we want to help anyone and everyone. We will do whatever we can to fight that thing. And, I, and so, you know, sin is like an addiction. It is a, we're all addicted. And God's, God knows what it does to us. He sees what it does to us. And so He has every right to to show righteous anger towards the things that destroy us. And, you know, Romans 8, a mind controlled by the flesh leads to death. A mind controlled by the Spirit leads to life and peace. He's, he's made it clear, and so He has every right. And it's just. Second thing is God's wrath should be feared. God's wrath should be feared. Read Hebrews 10, 30 and 31. Okay. Um, fear is interesting. We talk about fear. Um, you know, we, we want to rid fear out of our life. We want. So I've talked to some who believe that Christians shouldn't have any fear, that we should not fear nothing, you know. Um, and that's, there's slogans that say that. But the Bible actually says that fear is a, is a good thing <laughs> towards the Lord. Um, I'll say this later, but Proverbs. 21 times it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, beginning of knowledge, the fountain of life. Um, it, it's, it's all 21 different times. Uh, so it says it in, the, in, in Hebrews 10. It also says it in Hebrews 4 that we should fear falling away from the Lord. Um, Jesus says this in Matthew 10:28, And do not fear those who can kill the body, 
um, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So it seems like fear isn't something we should just never have, but appropriate fear of God is something that we should certainly have. Um, And it's a fear that comes from awe and wonder and also a, a recognition of His power and His holiness and His justice and His righteousness. So God's wrath should be feared. Third, God's wrath is consistent in the Old Testament and New Testament. Who has Nahum? Caleb. Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath from His enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power and will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds and the dust of His feet. Okay. So that's powerful words. Okay. Um, you know, I, I would assume most would, would kind of say, yeah, I can see the wrath of God throughout the Old Testament. You know, He, he uses the Israelites to wipe out other nations. He, he displays that even against His own people in, in, in turning them into exile. There's, there's all kinds of things that's happened. That's, that's basically what's happening here in Nahum. Um, but what about the New Testament? Here's what Jesus says in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by, their, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, there is, it's, it's consistent throughout the old and the new. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The wrath of God is, is, is present and is just and should be feared. So this idea that it's different needs to be discerned and rejected. Fourth, God's wrath is satisfied in Christ for those in Christ. Who has Ephesians 2? I thought you were stopping at three. I'm like, no, <laughs> keep going. That the best part is next. Um, yeah. So he said, we were by nature children of wrath. Romans five describes beautifully that that because of um, Adam's sin was passed on to us, and that all sinned, and so all deserve death. But God. That's why verse 4 is so big. Rich in mercy. And so we'll get to that. But this idea that, that it's satisfied in Him. In fact, there's a word in the New Testament that describes this, this, this kind of appeasing, that Christ's sacrifice appeased God's wrath, appeased His judgment. And it's this word propitiation. Um, propitiation. Did I leave a blank for that? 
I did. Uh, P-R-O, P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. Propitiation. And it's, again, it's this idea Jesus appeased the judgment and wrath of God for us. It's in, it's in Romans 3, 3.25. We'll read that later. Hebrews 2.17, 1 John 2 and 4. Um, so, Christ's sacrifice for us appeased His wrath, um, satisfied the wrath of God. What about the mercy of God? The mercy of God. The mercy of God is His tender, loving, tender-hearted, loving compassion for His people. Tender-hearted, loving compassion for His people. And the first thing is that God's, God's, um, God's goodness toward all of His creation. That's the, the mercy of God. It is God's goodness toward all of His creation. So that blank is the mercy of God is His tender-hearted, loving compassion for His people. And the first one is God's goodness toward all His creation. Um, somebody read, well, somebody look up Psalm 145, 8 and 9. Who's got that? Somebody new. Psalm 145, okay? Someone else, look up Romans 9, 14 through 16. Okay? And then someone else, Psalm 103, 8. Actually, no, we already have that one. Lamentations. Here's a different one. Lamentations 3, uh, 31 through 33. Who is that? Lamentation 3, 31 through 33. right after Jeremiah. Alright, so Psalm 145, 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Okay. So, so some, some have described this as I've been reading about the mercy of God. Some have described like this this um, this one more than others, this mercy of God is something that is, is seen and experienced in all of creation. That, that seems to be consistent throughout the Scriptures that it's describing that His creation is just receiving this. It is, it is what it brings the sweetness to um, all of His goodness and all of His attributes. That God's, it is God's goodness toward all His creation. The next one is, is actually a quote from A.W. Tozer, that mercy is the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. Confronting is the blank. Confronting human suffering and guilt. And this is the full quote. He says, as, as judgment is God's justice confronting moral inequity, so God's judgment is, is, is um, God's righteous, just action toward sin. So he says, as that is true, so mercy is the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. He goes on to say, it is human misery and sin that call forth divine mercy. There are wasps in here that just like to float down and let us know they're all here, but he's fine. He's over there now. So, the mercy of God. Over and over, God tells His people, and I'll talk about an example here in a little bit. He tells His people 
if, if you obey my commandments, if you keep this covenant with me, this is how it will go for you. You will be blessed. You, you, know, you, you will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. This is what will happen. When you, when you disobey, when you walk away from, when you reject my um, covenants and disobey my commands, this is how it will go for you. And, and over and over and over, there is, um, there is mercy and, and grace and provision prosperity for, for obedience, and then there is judgment and, and wrath and jealousy and for disobedience. And, and what, what, I, what, what is amazing is God tells them, this is what's going to happen. And then it happens, and then He says, okay, so now I'm going to give you an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to turn back to Me. He always, he always His mercy is always including a, 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 a plan B. Like, okay, yeah, I set out to do that and then I, I, I got caught up in my own desire and I, I, I didn't. I did what, my, what, what I wanted to do. And God goes, yeah, I know. And I told you what would happen if you did. But now you have an opportunity to turn back to me. There's this mercy that's broken. He doesn't need to do that. He's made it clear this is what's going to happen and, and He has mercy built in. It's confronting what's, what's happening with sin and guilt. Third, His mercy is given in absolute freedom. This was a fun thing to think about. His mercy is given absolutely free. It's in freedom. God is, God is the, the only true free being. What I mean by that is His mercy is not given out of compulsion or it's not given and hoping that you would give Him something back, that He somehow needs something for you, and so maybe if He's merciful to you, you'll like Him more. Now that's, that's more how we do it. But God is totally free of that. His, his mercy flows from his, his character, from His essence, from who He is. It just, it just is. Our suffering and our, our, our guilt and our shame, um, in, in some sense, call forth His mercy on us, and, and God displays it and shows it. So, so I'm going to read nine, uh, Romans 9, 14 through 16. This, this, this can sound like, if you want to somehow manipulate God to get what you want, this could be scary. <laughs> but if you believe that God is way better than we could ever be, and way um, more gracious and, and good than we deserve, then this is incredible news. The fact that, he, that His mercy um, isn't dependent on our actions or our will, but is fully just coming from who He is. Um, that's an amazing thing. Fourth, he is slow to anger and delights in giving mercy. We've already seen this in, in Psalm 103.8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The, all throughout Scripture it talks about this, that, that mercy and forgiveness and love seem to be abounding and he is rich in. And then he's, he's always slow to anger and, he's, and, he, and his anger won't stay forever. And it seems like there is, I don't, I, want, I don't want to say he's hesitant, I don't think God is hesitant, but it seems like his anger is, yeah, is slow, and his mercy is, 
is abounding, is rich. He delights in giving it. So read Lamentations 3. not afflict from his heart. Um, in, in the CSB it says, for he does not enjoy bringing affliction. It, it's kind of the, the idea. So, what about examples of where you have mercy and wrath kind of coming together? I've mentioned a few. Here's, here's a few more. Deuteronomy 29 and 30. Uh, I, I recommend going back and reading those two. Um, actually, reading Deuteronomy 8 too. 8 is awesome as well. But Deuteronomy 29 and 30. 29, he, he goes through and he's describing to the, to the people of Israel, here's what happens if you abandon my covenant. It results in my anger and my jealousy. So I want to I stop there. Think about the jealousy of God. This is something we haven't really talked about. It's, it's, it's really connected to the wrath of God. Why is God jealous? Why would God be jealous? Is, does He want something, some sort of material thing that we have? Does he want something that he can't get? Um, what is he jealous for? Hello. And it's this idea that, um, it's this idea that God, God recognizes that he is the only true, the greatest necessary being. And so therefore, he deserves our worship, our praise, he deserves our our uh, um, our affliction or uh, not affliction. What's the word? Affection. Thank you. He deserves our affection. He deserves our praise. So he deserves these things, and he recognizes that. He knows that we were made to bring him glory. And so when he sees us giving that glory to something else, or that um, affection to something else, or worshiping something else, or putting anything above above him. He's a jealous God. And, and, and just like that parent who recognizes this drug is, is killing my son. So, so God recognizes like our idolatry or our praise or our seeking worldly things is, is, is essentially killing my, my, my child. It is not what they were meant for. It's not who they are. And, and so he is jealous of that. And, and righteously, right, rightfully. So, 29, he's saying, if you abandon my covenant, there's, there's anger and, and jealousy from me. But then he says, in, in, in 30, if you return to the Lord, and you repent, and he says, if you obey with your heart and your soul, it means mercy and prosperity. There, there's mercy and prosperity. He promises, he promises, to, he promises to give us opportunities to repent and to turn for Him. And that is His mercy. And that is, um, and, and there's gifts that come with that. Another one that, that's, that I like is actually a, one verse that's found in two places. Uh, it's found in James 4.6 and in 1 Peter 5.5. 5, and it's that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I love this idea. I think God... Um, I think this is a really helpful understanding of who of our God. So think about the times in your life when you you've been prideful, 
and, and you've not wanted to surrender to Him, or you've wanted to kind of hold something to yourself, or you know, your, your, your pride stopped you from admitting or confessing or whatever. And, 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 and to recognize that in those moments, God is opposing you. That are, there is an opposition that's coming. He's not passive. You're not like hurting His feelings. He's opposing this pride. And yet, um, there is grace to the humble. There's grace to those who recognizes their need for Him. I love that verse. But by, but by far, the greatest example and the greatest picture of these two things coming together, in fact, so many attributes, all of God's attributes coming together, is the cross of Christ. The cross is the perfect evidence of His consistency between His goodness and love, between His justice and wrath. It's, it's all of those things coming together. Um, and so when we talk about God's action defining these things, we're, we've got to start with the cross because it is the greatest picture of, of the wrath of God, the, the judgment, the just, the holiness, the righteousness, um, the jealousy of God coming down and in, in, in mixing with His mercy, His forgiveness, His love, His grace. All right in one. So someone read, I need someone to read Romans 3. We're just going to start 21 through 26. I think this is the greatest paragraph in the Bible. This is my opinion. But it is. So Romans 3, 21 through 26. Who has it? Who wants to read it? It can be anybody. volunteering. Okay, Griff. There is a lot there, um, and so I'm not going to talk through that, although this year at the table we're teaching through Romans, so we will spend significant time in this section. But you have the cross of Christ, you have what Christ has done. I'll just point out one of my favorite parts about this verse that really kind of jumped out at me several years ago is verse 26, um, that He might be just, because God is just, and, he, and, and for God to be a just God, we want God to be a just God. We want, we want Him to exercise justice. We absolutely do. But He recognizes that we can never pay what is needed to be paid. So He's not only just and must punish sin, but He's also the justifier, and so He takes the punishment for us. He is on both sides of this. It's a beautiful picture. So, in, in just the last couple moments, why is this so hard? Why, why is um, 
the mercy of God, the wrath of God? Why do we struggle with these things coming together? I'll, I'll speak personally for me. This is why I struggle with it. And the first is, um, I feel entitled to it. I feel in, not really to the, the wrath of God. I don't really feel entitled to that. I can, honestly, I tend to lean toward, no, oh, the mercy of God. Yes, God is good and He's forgiving and He's loving. I, I like that picture. <laughs> um, I feel entitled. The air that we breathe, I believe, as Americans especially, is an unquestioned assumption that we have rights to, pers- to pursue whatever we want. And we talk about this a lot. And, and so, giving every person the, the right to, to life, all that I'm, I'm absolutely for. What I'm, what I'm kind of zeroing in on is this idea that I have rights. And, and the more I start to live in this idea that, I know, I have rights. No, it's my right to be able to. And we don't start from an assumption that we were created by God, our, our culture. When I say we, I mean the culture, the air that we breathe in, in, in today. It's not a, an assumption that I am created by God, therefore He has complete authority over me, therefore um, I will follow His lead. That's not the assumption that we live in. No, we live in a culture that assumes, no, I have rights, and, and what I want is, is perfectly fine and good, and so I'm going to go for it. And it's, there's a lot there. But it, what it leads to for me is, as I've been thinking about it and praying about it for the last couple of weeks, is there's an entitlement to the mercy of God. And I think anytime we feel entitled to God's grace or God's mercy, we have completely missed it. We've, compl- we've missed the point. So, entitlement, I think, is a struggle for me. Another one is I minimize sin. I minimize sin. The reason I feel entitled to His mercy and reject this idea of His wrath is because I minimize the sin in my life. The air I breathe, the air we breathe in our culture, I think, is that basically I'm a good person who makes some mistakes, but it's really not that big a deal. So why is God angry at me? I'm a good person. Like, I open the door for people. You know, when when I'm pulling into a parking spot, if I see an older lady, I let her have it. I mean, that's just the kind of guy I am. What's the big deal? We're good. I'm a good person. I just I make some mistakes, and so when I when I minimize sin, then then I don't accurately see a, a righteous and holy God. And and that's a problem. And then the last is, I lack fear and humility. I said earlier, 21 times in Proverbs, this idea of fear of the Lord. Um, that, that, that Jesus says, you don't fear men. <laughs> they can't really, they can't do anything to your eternity. Fear the one who can. Fear the one who has power over your life now and forever. And, and that's the words of Jesus. And so I, 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 I don't read those words. No, you know the words I like to read a lot? Is that, um, I can't remember now, John 10.10. Um, he came, came to give me life and life to the full. I like those words. Those are awesome words. I want life. I want life to the full. But this idea that yeah, I should fear the one who... That's not... Those aren't the words I'm memorizing. Um, we will understand our need for His wrath and mercy 
when we have an accurate view of Him and ourselves in light of Him. And, and because I often lack a, an appropriate fear of... And when I say fear, I'm, I'm picturing like Revelation 4 and 5. When, when John meets Jesus in Revelation 1, actually falls on his face, he thinks he's going to die. That's not just, um, that's not poetic license. That's, that's John describing this encounter with Jesus. And then he sees God on the throne, and he sees the Lamb that was slain. And, and he, the only thing he knows how to do is like bow down and, and, and face down. And I mean, there's an, every, Isaiah in Isaiah 6, or Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1, every time someone encounters God or even um, heavenly beings, they, they, they think they're going to die. They fall on their face. And I don't... I'm more buddy-buddy with God than I am fall on my face before Him. And so this study has really begun to help me see some connections to maybe lackadaisical nature I, I have with pursuing holiness or seeking to live for God. Um, I think it's connected to these things, entitlement, minimizing sin, lacking fear and humility. So, I want to take, I want to give you a few moments to reflect on things that I've been saying, and then um, I will give you some questions that you guys can discuss. But take, take a few minutes to finish writing some things down you need to write, or spending some time in prayer that you need to spend, um, but just process Maybe some things that God is saying to you or looking up some scriptures that He wants you to look up.